0: He is so good. Scripture says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people, and he is here this morning. So if this is your first week here with us, we're starting a a new series today, and uh, it's called What's Love Got to Do With It? Yes, what's love got to do with it, and so we're talking about love, it's, you know, it's the the month of love. It's, you know, no sooner did we take down the Christmas decorations in Walmart. They had hearts everywhere. It's the way it is. It's Valentine's Day is coming up. Men, you've only got a few days, so keep that in mind. Um, But this is the month of love. We're talking, we're singing about God's love. We're talking about love this week and next week and the week after. And we're going to look at one passage of Scripture. One passage of Scripture. Chances are that if you got married in a church, this may have been read during your your wedding ceremony. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I invite you to turn there with me if you have your scripture with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't even have one at all, we have them back there on a, on a uh, little tiny table. Take it with you. Because we believe here at Palmeyer Grace that if you get into the Word, the Word gets into you. And God's Word has a, the power with the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and your life. And so, 1 Corinthians 13, my version has the way of love on the top. Let's read this together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love Never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I came a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we go to your word this morning, I would just ask that you would quiet our minds with the things that we may maybe have going on later today. There may be things that are just We came here this morning with fears, with anxieties, with hurts. Lord, just allow us in this moment to sit at your feet and to hear what you have to say. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would use me as a vessel. Don't let me say anything that would take away from your word, Lord. I can't do this on my own. I need you to speak through me. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands and feet to put it into action. Don't let this be a time of information transfer, transfer, but Lord, I ask that you would transform hearts and lives, that our Monday is different because we were here with you this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name, amen. I had to take a drink there, I was singing too loud. So uh, this year, uh, it will be 15 years since these two kids got married. Yeah. It's obvious I married up. I didn't have to tell anybody that. But, um, you know, I had these awesome ideas. I look at that guy right there, and I think, man, you had no idea. I had these awesome ideas of what love was going to be, you know, what marriage was going to be like. I mean, I had some great ideas, and it was like, you know, I had an idea of where we were going to live, And what that was going to look like, what kind of house we were going to have. I had had ideas about what kind of car I was going to drive. And I promise you, it wasn't a minivan. (laughs) Right? I mean, can I get an amen from some of you guys? Yeah? Um, I had ideas about where we go on vacation every year. I had ideas about what food Jessica was going to cook for me. I had ideas about the number of kids we were going to have. I had all kinds of ideas about what marriage was going to be like. And here's the crazy thing. Every idea was focused on me. It was. And then I went on a honeymoon, and we came back from the honeymoon, and I found out, guess what? It's not all about me. In fact, love is a lot more to do with something else. I found out that as you grow in your relationship, as you're married, as you go through life, that there's a give and take. And that actual true love requires so much of us to give away, not so much for me to receive. But I had a very, I mean, I would have never admitted it at the time, no way, but I had a very me-centered view of my relationship. I learned a lesson that, that I had to shift in my mind and my heart from a me to a we. And I realized that the cost of that was love. That the cost of me giving all that away was love. That love cost something, and it all, mostly it cost a lot of the me's that I wanted. And then actually, by sh- making this shift, I gained a lot more than what I thought when I was me-centered. But the crazy thing is, is that I really thought it was all about me. And, and you know what? I don't think if you, if you sometimes fall into this, that that's different. If you've, if you've ever dug, uh, struggled with this shift, that you're different from anyone else. Because in the world, the way love is portrayed, the way it is in movies, the way it is in TV, worldly love is really sold as this what's-in-it-for-me type of love. And if we're not careful, we can approach every relationship with other people with this mindset of, okay, now I'm going to be in relationship with this person, but what am I getting out of it? Even the way that we do romantic relationships in our world today, the way it's shown on television, the way it's talked about in books, is this, this idea of where we almost objectify the other person to get what our needs need to be met. In fact, I've talked to people who have said, this relationship isn't working anymore because I'm not getting my needs met. There's a a crazy thing that we have about a me-centered view of love, real love, not not just romantic love, but real love, what what that kid had to find out about was that real love was selfless, real love was sacrificial, real love was unconditional, real love was not all about me, and you know, if we are honest with each other today, we all struggle with this. And there's a reason why we struggle with this, and there's a reason why that dark place of ourselves, even when we try to be good people, where where that what's-in-it-for-me attitude comes up, it usually comes up in the people that we love the most. It's the people that we're closest to. And the root cause of this selfishness in us is this thing called sin. You know, sin can actually be translated as selfishness. It's one of the translations that you can have for sin. It's putting myself first. And we know that each of us, the scriptures are very clear, that each of us sin and fall short of what God's glorious standard is. And this sin that's inside of us keeps us bent towards this what's in it for me attitude. And there's symptoms of this. There's symptoms of knowing that we're hardwired for self-preservation. We're hardwired for self-advancement. We're hardwired to be self-centered. We're hardwired to seek our comfort before others. It's inside of us. We have a genetic flaw, and it's called sin. It's called selfishness. It's called self-centeredness. And here's the symptoms of it, if you don't believe me. We have a critical spirit. We do sometimes. Well, maybe if I'm making you feel bad, I'll say, I have a critical spirit. This is just me. The rest of you, you're good. This is just a confessional for the pastor this morning. But this is how we know we have a critical spirit. We always think our ideas are better than somebody else's. We always do. We, 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 we may not say it, but we do. We have a critical spirit. We, we look at our, out for ourselves first, how can I prove this to you if I had a picture, a picture where you were with a group of people and I said, hey, check out this picture. Guess whose picture, who's, who you would look for in that picture first? You, every single time. We look out for ourselves first. We have low self-esteem. Our, we think our performance is bad. We think we're not good enough. And we feel like sometimes our low self-esteem is humility, but actually sometimes it's self-centeredness because we're self-conscious about who we are. We can't forgive ourselves. Sometimes as Christians, if you're a Jesus follower in in the room today, sometimes you can't forgive yourself, and you can't forgive yourself for things that Jesus was stretched out on a cross 2,000 years ago to die for so that you may be forgiven. And somehow inside of us there's something broken where we convince ourselves that because we can't forgive ourselves that we're not worth being forgiven. It's actually... A reflection of our own self. We're competitive. Who's competitive in the place today? Yeah? Some, for some of us, losing is the worst possible thing that could ever possibly happen. We talk about ourselves all the time. I can, I'm, I'm a, I'm, or talk over people all the time. I'm, I'm a guy who has a problem with this sometimes. You ever catch yourself waiting for someone to finish before you start talking? Like, you don't even know what they're saying. You're like, yeah, 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 get it out because i got something better to say. You know what I mean? That's, that's just a, it's a part of these broken things. We hold grudges. That's, a, that's the last one. We hold, we hold grudges. People hurt me. You hurt me. You're dead. You're dead to me. We're never talking again. These are all symptoms of this self-centered, self-selfishness. Self-selfish, and, um, and this isn't just normal for us. This is normal throughout the history of the world. In fact, in Scripture, 2,000 years ago, there was this city called Corinth, And the Apostle Paul went to the city and he reached people for Jesus there. And you know what happens when you reach new people for Jesus? They start a church. And they start worshiping Jesus. And you know what happens when you get two or three gathered? God's there. But you know what else is there? Issues. And you know why there's issues? Because there's people. There's people that have a genetic flaw of self-centeredness and sin. And so they get together and lo and behold, they start a church and they start doing life together as a church. And they start to have problems. They start to have problems because the me has to become a we and no one's giving up that cost to love one another. And so there's problems that are happening in the church in Corinth, problems that maybe you've never heard of. At the division, at the root of it, they were in a division against one another. There was problems that if you read First Corinthians, you find out that, that they were even saying, well, I'm, I'm on this person's side. The other people would say, I'm on this person's side. I'm on Paul's side. I was baptized by Paul. They were against one another, and there, there was a division in the church, and Paul writes a letter to try to deal with this, because people were trying to one-up one another. Ever been around a one-upper? You know, it's like, I had a great vacation at Disney World. Oh, yeah, well, I went to Disney World one time, and it was way better than that. You know, those, are those, I, those people are special. And, um, and, but there, there was a lot of one-uppers in this church, and they were, they were going at it with one another. They were doing crazy things, like when they came to go- together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion, the people that had more money were eating all the food and weren't saving any for the people that didn't have any money, the poor. They were doing things like that. What else were they doing? Sexual promiscuity was rampant in the church in Corinth. We think that it's something that only happens today. It was rampant. People, when they came to follow Jesus and find out that Jesus would forgive any sin, began to believe, well, if Jesus forgives any sin that I do, then I might as well sin and have a little fun. And people were doing things that was outside of God's will with that. There was all kinds of problems. People basically, in the church in Corinth, where this letter was written, got to the place where they believed that social advancement, even social advancement in the church... Being more important than anyone else in the church was more important than the advancement of Jesus' gospel, than people knowing who God was. And Paul, being the guy who had to, who planted the church, the guy who was the spiritual father to them, he had to write a letter about it. Hit had to write a letter to him. In fact, in the middle of this letter, what we're going to talk about today, Paul taught them that the spiritual gifts, the, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to people in the church that allows the church to fulfill its mission. They even were taking those gifts that God gave, and they were saying, well, I have this gift, and it's better than your gift. And we can all think, man, this is a messed up place. But if we're honest, it's something that hides in each and every one of our hearts. And so the context of what we're reading is Paul addressing that issue with them taking those spiritual gifts and, those, and, and putting one above the other. And he was trying to address that. But I believe, I believe that the deeper issue that we can talk about, even as we recognize that the context of what's happening is these spiritual gifts, the deeper issue is really what's at the root of why they were, they were putting themselves above one another. The root of it all is that selfishness. The root of it all is that self-centeredness. The root of it all is our inability sometimes to shift from me-centered to we-centered. And so Paul, in his letter, starting in verse 31 of uh, chapter 12, says this, earnestly desire the higher gifts. So he just finished talking about all the gifts that build up the body, and he says, you want to earnestly desire the higher gifts, which are coming in the next chapter, in chapter 14, but but first... But first, I want to show you a more excellent way now, he's referring to the gifts, but he's, at this point in this letter, he has just addressed all of these things that are causing these people to be at odds with one another. All of the mess that this church had, because you know what, when people together get, get together in a church, sometimes there's problems, and not this church. I want you to know, you know, there's no problems in this church, because, you know, it's the church down the street, and we talk about them sometimes, but, you know, this church, we got it all together. No, anytime you get people together, there's problems. He's like, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you what transcends all of the problems between relationships. And then he starts into chapter 13, where he talks about love. He says, let me tell you about this thing called love. And he uses hyperbolic language. He's, he kind of goes to the extreme to prove his point about how love, love can transform the way we do relationships. And so he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, we'll get there in a second. One of the things that that this church was having a problem with was the gift of tongues. But there's a bigger context here. In In the time that this letter was written, all of these places in the kingdom of Rome, they loved these towns, they loved people that talked really well. It was something that was put up on a pedestal. I joke sometimes with people that I have no idea what I'm doing, but I talk better than anybody else standing in front of people, so they just put me in charge. You know, that's that's the way that they worked in in, in the first century in the Roman Empire. If you were a good orator, you were somebody who was important and it was interesting because in this letter Paul actually tells them in chapter 2 when i came to you i wasn't a very good speaker i didn't speak well because i did not want to take away from anything about the power of jesus christ and his cross but he he says if i speak with the tongues of men of angels and of angels and basically he's saying if i can talk better than anyone else if any imaginable type of speech I am super gifted at. So in your mind, as people that live in Corinth, I'm a really important person. But I don't have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I could come over here and I would, if we had it on, I could beat on this and beat on this and beat on this and it would be real loud and it may even make your ears hurt and make your ears ring. But guess what? After a little bit, when the, te- when the tone stops vibrating, it goes away. And Paul says, I can be so good that when I'm talking, I am making an impact. But guess what? When I stop talking, it has no lasting effect if there is not love. Because my words only have effect on a heart when there's love. Effect that's eternal, effect that's God-given. But he goes on he says, and if I have prophetic powers, that's another one of the gifts. If I have prophetic powers, if I have the gift of prophecy that I can speak to a church and I can tell them where they're out of step with God's will and where God, maybe even God can give me a vision that I can share with people. If I have that kind of connection with God, which, wow, who wouldn't want that? And if I understand all mysteries, not just the little mysteries, if I understand all of them, and if I have all knowledge Think about this, once again, in the Greek mind, in the Roman mind, having the understanding of all mysteries, having the understanding of all knowledge, being able to have this prophetic power was something that was highly esteemed. It was something that people that had these gifts were puffing up their chest and looking down on people that didn't have them. He said, I can have all of this. I can be the smartest person. And not only that, but if I have all faith Now, we know that faith's essential. Faith is what gives us faith, and God gives us faith to believe in Jesus Christ, but he's talking about all faith. If I have all faith, the perfect and total amount of faith you need so as to even remove mountains, we're talking about the kind of faith that works miracles. If I have that kind of faith, so if I have all prophetic powers, if I have all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, I don't know anybody that has that, but if I did, if I have all faith so I can even work miracles but I don't have love I'm nothing Now if you're familiar with this passage it's it's easy to miss this do you hear what Paul's saying to these people I mean, you could be that gifted with God's power. You could be that gifted with the whole knowledge. You could be that gifted. You can have things that even our world today would say, wow, you're a person that's amazing. You have so much potential. You can make so much money. You could have so much influence. You can have all of this, but you don't have love. You're nothing. You have nothing. He goes on, and he starts talking about mercy and justice, because we, even now, don't we look up to that? Don't we look up to people that are heroes, people that do good things? Gosh, I watch, you know, shows like where they surprise people with a house, and I can't keep from crying. You know? Uh, it's, it's something we still hold up. And he says, if, if I give away all that I have, if I'm if I'm the most generous person you've ever met. And I, and I have mercy on the poor, and I give away all that I have. And this word, give away, if you look in the original language that the Bible was written in, it's written, it was written in Greek, and Greek has different tests. This is in the past tense, aorist form, and, and if it's an aorist verb, what's trying, what he's trying to say is that in one sweeping motion, I'm giving everything away. I'm, I'm saving nothing, and it's for all time. It's something that I'm going to do. So listen, if I take everything I have and I give it all away in one sweeping motion, I just hand somebody the keys to my house, the car, my bank account, it's all yours. I'm not turning back. If I give it all away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I martyr myself for the cause, if I do either of these things, which most most of us, if we're honest, would probably never even considering doing. But Paul really wants to make sure that we understand what he's saying. Even if I do that, and listen, if somebody was to give up all that they had, like Mother Teresa, I think they're a pretty special person, right? Or if somebody was to give up their body to be burned, you know, one of my favorite movies is is, uh, Braveheart with Mel Gibson. You know, freedom! We We love those movies. We love those things where people give up their very lives for something. And Paul says, if I do that, Even if I do that, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's very clear. He says, love can't be measured by our actions. Love can't be measured by what we do. Love can't be measured by how much we give away, how much we deliver our body. The only way that love can be measured is by our motives and what we're doing. And here's the thing that we need to know this morning. This is the thing that you need to know. As we're thinking about this me to we, as we're thinking about this struggle that we all have if we're honest with each other, about giving away our self-centeredness for the benefit of someone else, this is a process, this is a love that cannot happen without the transforming power of the Holy Spirit working in our heart. I, 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 it's probably... Pretty strong language to say, but I will tell you, I don't think that you can get to the kind of love that God shows and talks about in scripture for other people unless he is alive in your heart. Because at the root of everything that destroys love and destroys relationship is the sin that must be washed away by the blood of Jesus. So it's a transformation from selfishness to love that brings about through Jesus Christ and what he's done. When we read that he leaves the 99 for the one, we will not have that heart. You will not have that heart. You will not be able to love your spouse. You will not be able to love your kids. You will not be able to love your coworker when they say that thing that always makes you crazy, unless God is at work in your heart. This is what Paul's saying. You could do all of these things, but you will never be able to get there on your own if your, mo- your motives will always be self-centered without Jesus. And that's why Jesus is our model for what love is. That's why we have to have a relationship with Jesus to understand what love is. Our transformation starts with him and knowing him. He is who we model love after. And scripture is super clear about this. In 1 John, John writes this. This is real love. This is what love is. This is the word of God. This is what he says. This is what love is. Not that we love God, not something that we do or our hearts are turned to, but he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Love is defined by what Jesus did and how he was selfless. And he goes, Scripture in another place, in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes about just the normal human condition like we're talking today. He says this, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the picture of love we have. Now he goes on and he says, for rarely will someone die for a just, will someone die for a just person. Though for a good, perha- good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. So he says, you know, for you and me that struggle with selflessness, we may actually be selfless for somebody who's a good person. We may do that. We may have enough love in our hearts sometimes to do that and be a hero, but here's the thing. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, in that now while we were still against him, in that now we were, while we were still enemies of him and really and every single part of our body, and every single part of our heart, every single part of our life was turned away from him in diametrically opposition to who he was and who he would love. He did something amazing. He died for us. And folks, we can't lose sight of that. That's the starting point of love. One more passage that Paul wants us to get this. Writing to another church in Philippi, Paul writes this, to a church about how interpersonal relationships work. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way and having the same love united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Before I go with the rest of this, Paul's writing to a church and he's saying, listen, guess what? When there's a bunch of me's that get together to do anything, there's going to be a bunch of problems, but guess what? If there's going to be any encouragement of Christ, if there's going to be anything that's going to be good coming out of everyone being in relationship with one another, you have to have the same love. You have to be united in, the, in one purpose. And then he goes on and he says, so do nothing out of ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Folks, we cannot get there without the transforming power of Christ's love in our hearts. It's just not natural in who we are. Everyone should look not only out for his own interests, but for the interests of others, and adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. And once again, look how Christ is our model. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he came as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the thing. This internet connection isn't reliable at the moment. There you go. Here's the thing. For you and for me, just like that young kid who had to learn after he finished his honeymoon, for you and for me, every personal relationship we're in, any relationship we're in in this world, if we approach that relationship with a heart of selfishness, which is our natural ability, and listen, maybe you have a hard time getting past that this morning. I know it. I know it's who I am. I know the what it, what's in it for me is where I can go. And if you approach that relationship without the transforming power of God and his love, you'll never get to a place where you'll be able to take on the attitude of Christ Jesus. And even the things that you do that are good, even your motives, in a way will be self-centered. You'll serve somebody and you'll say, boy, I hope somebody finds out about that. You'll give some money away for some cause and I'll just drop that into this conversation. I hope somebody recognizes how holy I am Or maybe even you think, man, there's other people in the church or other people in my life, they don't do what I do. So why, God? Why are you attacking me with this issue? It comes in that way. I'm a pastor. I I give away money. I give away time. I serve everyone for you. I deserve not to have any of these issues. That's how it comes in. But God's love transforms all of that. And guess what? I believe that in this word, it tells us there's a level of love that we can have when we fall in love with Christ Jesus. And he changes us from the inside out that we can actually love Jesus so much that we are able to show his love to others. I believe that. I believe we're we're able to lose everything, to lose our reputation, to lose all that we are for other people because of what Jesus did for us. And the key to our motive is not the person that you're loving, the key to every motive is your love for Christ Jesus and what he did for you. Because let's be honest, folks, some people don't deserve to be loved, right? I mean, they do, but let's be honest, sometimes you're like, you know what, pastor, good sermon, I mean, it's good, but. If you knew this woman at work, you wouldn't tell me to love her. Pastor, I understand that, but if you knew my ex-wife, you wouldn't tell me that I need to love her. If you knew what he did, if you knew what she did, they wouldn't deserve love. Guess what? The scripture doesn't say love people because they deserve it. The scripture says we're called to love people with that reckless love that we talked about because Jesus loved us. And the motive is always our relationship with him. And if you're struggling to move from me to we with somebody in your life right now, you know what you have to do? You need to fall more in love with Jesus. You need to realize how much he loves you. You need to have him speak words into your life because once you realize that everything begins and ends with his love, you're able to love people because he first loved you. That is the key to love and it's crazy. I think it's crazy that when we look through 1 Corinthians, when we look through these, all of these things that he talked about, whether it's eloquence of speech, or it's having knowledge, or having great vision, or leadership, or people thinking you're important, or giving yourself away for a, for a good cause, or, or giving all of your money to, to the poor, by doing all of these things. Or, let's take it even further, it's about, it's all about getting that promotion, and I'm, I'm really good at speaking, so I get that promotion, or it's about, I have all knowledge, so I get the next promotion, or I get the job, or I have more money than everybody because I'm gifted in this way. All of those things could be added to that list in first corinthians 13 1 to 3 as ways that we would want to put ourselves above others and then paul would say but if you have not love you're nothing but the crazy thing is is all of those things that the world has to offer that we think are going to set us above other people those are the things so often we chase after and it often hurts those that we love the most you know, Paul says, if you have all knowledge and not love, you have nothing, and yet there's people that search after knowing everything, and at one point or another, they stop knowing their children. There's people, you could say, well, you could have everything in the world, and there's people, there's, there's families where people work on, on, and on, and on, constantly searching after that American dream, whatever that looks like, and you know what they sacrifice? The people they're supposed to love. Folks, any time that you start, stop loving someone and start pursuing that which you believe is going to put you above other people or give you, get you to that, that, that mountain that you just want. When I finally get here, I'll feel like I made it. There's a good chance that those you love are gonna be hurt in the process. Now let's, let's be clear. I'm not saying that it's sinful to be successful. I'm not sin, saying it's sinful to be hardworking. But I am saying that it's the love of others and your interpersonal relationships when you make that shift from me to we that you're willing to understand the cost of every single sacrifice is love because of what Christ has done for you. And every relationship reaches that point. John Piper says it this way. He says, I don't get excited about behaviors in and of themselves. I'm excited about how passionately engaged you are with God and and the works that flow from that. It's not about, folks, it's not about what we do. It's about how your love for Christ transforms your heart so that you can love others better. So when people ask, how do you love, how do you love, how do you reach that point in my relationship where I have to shift from me to we, I have to realize that the cost is love. And the more I know the one who loved me, the more I'm willing to pay it. So I ask you this question, What's the cost of love for you this week? What's the cost of love for you this week? What's the thing that if I was, as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit was saying to you, you know what? For me really to love her the way that I need to love her, the way that God would call me to love her, this is the cost. This is the part, this is what I have to give up. Or for me to really step forward and to be in relationship with him and to spend extra time with him, what's the cost? What what do I I have to give up? Because the chances are that if we're going to love the way that Christ loved us, that we're going to have to stop something in order to start doing that better. Maybe it's as simple as this. What's the cost of love is a question that you carry in your heart, you write it down in your Bible, you write it down and put it on a card in your pocket so that when you walk into work tomorrow morning and you see him and you know within 15 minutes he's gonna say something that's gonna make you wanna rip his head off. This never happens for anyone else, right? That you can ask yourself, all right, what's the cost that Jesus is asking me to make here? What's love requiring of me in this relationship? Because not because that person deserves it, but because of what Christ did for you. Or maybe it's, maybe it's uh, your teenagers. Teenagers are in the room right now, and I'm sure you're all perfect for your parents all the time. But when your parents ask you to do something, and it's absolutely ridiculous, and I can't even believe they would ask you, I agree with you. And you know that... The right response is obedience. Ask yourself this week, what's the cost of love? What is God asking me to give up? How is God asking me to die to the response that's in my heart so I can love my parents the way that God has called me to love them? Parents, I'm not letting you off the hook. When they do that thing for the thousandth time and you don't feel like you have the patience to deal with it the thousandth time, remember, the cost of love is a shift from me to we. Folks, if we're going to be Christians in a world that doesn't believe it needs Christ, then we need to be people who understand how to relate to people with the love of Christ. And that requires us to give up the what's in it for me Chip on the shoulder, where it's all about me. And it requires us to have the mindset of Christ, who did not believe that being equal with God was something he should exploit, but instead, he made himself the form of a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. You know what's real love, according to John? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. For our sins what's the cost of love what, if you really love people what's love going to ask of you this week we can't get there by ourselves you can't fake this on your own this is something that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit as you come to know Christ and it stops being a burden and it starts being a joy and a get to the more he has a hold of your heart. Come back next week. We'll keep going on with the passage of 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that even though in many ways sometimes we still act like those people in Corinth who in every way are trying to put ourselves up against other people we look down our noses at other people we we get offended because we believe that we're owed something from other people we 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 put ourselves in situations at work and at home where we believe we're we're entitled to things we have problems with our spouses we have problems with our coworkers we have problems with our family members and if we're honest lord the reason is is because sometimes the only thing that we care about is ourselves Lord, as we look at love according to you, you tell us that the love of Christ and what he's done for us is our model of how we are to live out these relationships. So this week, as we make that shift in our lives from being me-centered to we-centered, Lord, help us love the way you loved us. Because we believe, I believe, Lord, that if you would do that in our hearts and lives, that we would show people a completely different way to live. And they would say, why are you so loving? And we'd get to tell them the greatest love story that ever was. And they'd come to know the love of Jesus. This our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name.